Evening, everyone. Thank you, Stephen. Really kind of helpful lead-in to what we're going to look at as we continue this talking. The talk series, which is tracking David's life since the point he became king. At the end of tonight, I kind of hope that we might respond in one of these five ways, all of these five ways, some of these five ways, with respect, with prayer, with praise, with thanksgiving, and with acceptance. And I'll kind of hopefully explain that as we get through and, and at the end. But let me, let me start with this idea of uh, famous last words. Whenever a key figure or a well-known person or personality is about to die, people are often intrigued by what they choose to say at the end. And so I'm going to show you a few famous last words, get a little bit of congregational participation, and see if anybody can guess who said these or recognize who said these. So here's the first. There's a number of these, so enter in, okay? So here's the first one. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Who said that? Jesus. Now, I know that somebody afterwards is going to go, well, technically, David, those are not Jesus's last words. Was the last words of Jesus not the Great Commission? Well, kind of, but before Jesus died, these were his last words. Okay, next one. Whose last words were those, apparently? Juliet Caesar, right? Juliet Caesar, right? Here's another one. I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Who said that? Take a punt, guess. Okay, Leonardo da Vinci said that. It's his last words. Here's somebody else's last words. I'm losing it. Who, who said that? It's Frank Sinatra. This is no way to live. The last words of Groucho Marx. One never knows the ending. One has to die to know exactly what happens after death, although Catholics have their hopes. Who said that? Alfred Hitchcock. I'm bored with it all. Whose last words were those? It's Winston Churchill. I should never have switched from scotch to martinis. <laughs> Anyone else know those ones? A few people hanging their heads. Humphrey Bogart. And then one of my favorite, and, and this one I think is well known, either that wallpaper goes or I do. Does anyone know who said that? Oscar Wilde, brilliant, John, brilliant. Okay, it's enough of that. Our closing song will be. Uh, sorry, I've used that before far too many times. <laughs> uh, but last words can be fascinating. And this evening, as we turn to 2 Samuel 23, if you do have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to it? Uh, it's page 330 in the Pew Bibles. The heading of this chapter, if you've got an NIV or even a New Living Translation, the heading of this chapter reads David's last words. Plus, if you look at the first verse, here it is on the screen. The first verse starts like this. These are the last words of David. And so there is a sense in which when you get to this point in the narrative, when you get to 2 Samuel 23, you realize this is a key moment in David's story. 40 years he's been king, but now the end is nigh. It's imminent. And so in a sense, you, you kind of want to lean in. And you want to listen really carefully to these last words of David. Because they, they've got to be important. They've got to be worth hearing. Now, I'm not about to question or query 
or suggest that what we are going to read is not worth hearing carefully, but I do need to point out, and, and some of you will know this, but I do need to point out that these are not quite the last words of David. In fact, you could argue, and a number of Bible commentators have, that this is the first of many last words of David. There could be up to 10 last words of David. And so you've got this one in 2 Samuel 23. You've then two more sets in 1 Kings 1. And then you have six more last words of David in 1 Chronicles 22, 28, and 29. And so some have suggested that what we are about to read tonight are actually, or is actually, David's last song, his last psalm as opposed to his very last words. I don't have a lot more to say on that other than it is worth bearing in mind as you read this text. If you've been journeying with us through this series and you get to chapter 23 of 2 Samuel and you read, it's worth bearing, these are actually not quite his last words. The second interesting fact here is that David is unique in this regard amongst the numerous kings. There are no recorded last words of any of the royal successors, never mind 10 sets. David's unique. He's the only king of Israel where we read his recorded last words. Okay, with all, in, with all of that in mind, let's now hear them. But before we kind of stand, as we often do at Windsor, and listen, look at verse one with me. Now, let me show you it in this kind of version here, which, which I think is, is really helpful. These are the last words of David. The inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse. The utterance of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, the hero of Israel's songs. Now, there is a sense in which it seems that verse 1 are not quite David's last words even, that somebody else said them. Now, there is a wee bit of debate amongst scholars as to, are these also David's last words? But actually, it doesn't seem to be. It seems to be a kind of introduction here to David's last words. But when you read that, that is an impressive CV. That is some summary of David's life. That's some tribute. He was an inspired, exalted, anointed hero. But what's critical to get is that all of these don't so much draw attention to David, although they do, but primarily they serve to highlight the incredible way in which God directed and was involved in David's life. Look at this phrase, even that little simple phrase, son of Jesse. It's a reminder to us of David's humble background and beginnings. Remember, David was the youngest son. He was the one that was overlooked for potential greatness right up until the last moment. His seven brothers were all thought to be far worthier candidates. David was almost an afterthought. Oh, yes, said Jesse, there is one more boy. But listen, he's out tending sheep. But this son, the eighth, turned out to be the inspired choice of God, who would then go on to speak and sing, as verse 1 tells us, inspiring words. Who would have thought that this humble shepherd boy would become truly great. And God still 
is in the business of plucking people from relative obscurity and ordinary origins and using them to inspire others, which David did and has done for centuries. He was an inspired choice, an an inspirational leader and king and man. Secondly, he was exalted. But notice, he wasn't exalted by himself or even by others, although in a sense, as king, that would have come with the territory. But he was exalted by the Most High. Again, the spotlight shifts from David to God, exalted by the Most High. Whenever David got the call up to be king and subsequently became king, he said this, who am I, sovereign Lord? What's my family that you have brought me this far? You see, David felt unworthy. He knew that his rise to power, he knew that his elevated status, he knew that his position was all of God. It was all God's doing. It was all God's leading. David had, and and so did others, a right perspective on his success and achievements. He was who he was and what he was because of God. He was exalted, not of himself, not by others, but by the Most High. And it was that perspective that kept David from the dangerous sin of pride. David was exalted, but not full stop, by God. And it kind of ties in with, you know, those infamous words of Jesus. Matthew records them. Luke repeats them. Whoever exalts themselves will be humbled. But whoever will humble himself will be exalted. You see, the way up is down. And if we can learn and practice humility, then we, like David, can know what it means to be exalted by the Most High. So son of Jesse, inspired choice of God, exalted. The third characteristic of David is that he was anointed, and again, by the God of Jacob. And David could remember that day really well. Whenever Samuel came and did that anointing ceremony, anointed him with oil, And if it hadn't been for God, Samuel would probably have anointed another of Jesse's boys because like everyone else, Samuel got caught up in the whole outward appearance thing. Samuel was looking at the exterior, whereas God saw the heart and therefore he led Samuel to choose the less likely one, Luke's ways. And God's anointing changed everything. Did it make David perfect? No. But it did mean that he was the chosen one by God to accomplish his purposes. And the thing is, God still anoints. Still anoints people to accomplish his purposes. And we'll come back to that thought in a little while. The final glittering tribute. So son of Jesse, inspired choice, exalted, anointed. And then finally, he was the hero of Israel's songs, or in some translations, the sweetest psalmist of Israel. Out of the, 700, out of, sorry, the 150 psalms, how many are attributed to David? Somebody have a guess. Keep you with me. Out of the 150, how many, according to the title, are attributed to David? 30, someone said. 
Anyone else? 100? 73. That is some back catalogue. He was a prolific songwriter, and many of them, like most great songs, were written out of personal experience, and so they came out of times when things were good. They also came out of times when things were bad. Many of the songs were written whenever David was in a positive frame of mind. Some of them were written whenever David was feeling rubbish. And David's songs were and continue to be a source of encouragement and hope. They have had and they still have a profound effect on readers today, singers today, people who pray today. David was the sweetest psalmist in all Israel, the hero of Israel's songs. And his popularity and his lyrics haven't waned that much. But if you look at the the footnote in some of your Bibles, I know some of you carry study Bibles to church, but if you look at the footnote in some of your study Bibles, that last description, the hero of Israel's songs, or the sweetest psalmist in Israel, some of you will have Bibles that have at the bottom that this is the way that should be translated, the favorite of the strong one of Israel. Now, that is a really tricky idea for us to get our heads around. Surely God has no favorites. How can the God who shows no partiality favor some? And in a sense, we're back to something I said last Sunday night. The God of paradox and mystery. I can't explain that. Nobody can. (laughs) But as one commentator I read this week makes clear, and I think I find this helpful, let me just quote this for you. Election in the Bible is always an exclusive means to an inclusive end. Election in the Bible is always an exclusive means to an inclusive end. As Abraham's call illustrates, you're the chosen one, Abraham. You're the one blessed. But then he was blessed for what purpose? Bit of engagement again. To be what? to be a blessing. Yes, there was a kind of exclusive call, an exclusive election, but an inclusive end. And some would say that Paul also argues along these lines extensively in Romans 9 to 11. And as we have tracked David's story from kind of 1 Samuel 16 to now, there have been many twists and turns, many ups and downs. But you see, as David reaches the end, 40 years as king, the end is nigh, the end is imminent. These are some of his last words, maybe not his very last words, but as we get to these last words of David, here is how he's described. Inspired, exalted, anointed hero. Did he always live up to these descriptions? No. But this is the way Scripture has him remembered. And as we sit here this evening, there are lots of challenges just raised by that one verse. For example, what is it that will be said of us as we reach our last days? What words will be used to describe us? Plus, don't forget that God still inspires, exalts, anoints, and makes those who humble themselves to be heroes, maybe unsung heroes 
but still heroes. Those who possess the right kind of heart. Those who have a heart after God's. Okay, that's verse one done. Let's, uh, let's now stand for the kind of public reading of, of God's word. We're going to pick it up from verse two. Here is what David actually says if you discount verse one as somebody else speaking an introduction. So, the spirit of the Lord speaks through me. His words are upon my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, the one who rules righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is like the light of morning at sunrise, like a morning without clouds, like the gleaming of the sun on new grass after rain. Is it not my family God has chosen? Yes, he has made an everlasting covenant with me. His agreement is arranged and guaranteed in every detail. He will ensure my salvation, my safety, and success. But the godless are like thorns to be thrown away, for they tear the hand that touches them. One must use iron tools to chop them down. They will be totally consumed by fire. Grab a seat. So even as you start to read these possible last words of David, you very quickly realize that they're not David's last words either. They're actually God's words. Because David begins by saying, the spirit of the Lord speaks through me. The words that are about to come out of David's mouth are God's words. I mean, what an incredible thing for anyone to be able to say. That before you say anything, that you can say the spirit of the Lord speaks through me. Back at, at David's initial anointing in 1 Samuel 6, 16 by Samuel, we read this. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. And here we are right at the end of his life and the spirit of the Lord is still powerfully upon David. Even through the mess he made of things and all the mistakes, the spirit of the Lord is still powerfully upon him and speaks through him. And again, without going off on too much of a tangent, for those who are Christians, we, as a result of the desire of Jesus and the reality of Pentecost, have powerfully received the Holy Spirit who encourages us and enables us to speak God words. From today until our last breath. But as David goes on, he recognizes and he keeps drawing attention to the source of his words. He says, verse three, the God of Israel spoke, the rock of Israel said to me. And again, that, that imagery, that connection, that comparison or likening God to a rock, it's a familiar idea. Only last week as we read 2 Samuel 22, we listened as David sang about the fact, God's my rock, God's my safe place, God's my refuge, God's my fortress. God is my dependable, solid, secure, reliable one. That has been David's story throughout his life. God has not shifted. The rock of Israel said to me. Now, the effect 
of verse 2 and 3a, that this kind of build up is meant to raise, an, is meant to raise expectation because David's about to offer these last words. And he says, the spirit of the Lord speaks through me, the God of Israel, the rock of Israel. Listen to what I'm about to say here. I mean, this is heightened expectation here. But when it comes, it is at one level relatively surprising. Because what follows is an interesting and incisive statement regarding the effects and impact of good leadership. Here it is again. The one who rules righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is like the light of morning at sunrise, like a morning without clouds, like the gleaming of the sun on new grass after rain. In other words, here's David's last words. The one who rules like this, the one who leads like this, the one who governs like this, is light and life-giving. They are a blessing. They promote growth. The one who rules with justice, who rules fairly, who rules, rules rightly, will be a source of renewal and hope and joy to those they lead. Their leadership will be refreshing. And you know, sadly, in all kinds of contact texts, countries, states, communities, organizations, and churches, Leadership can often be exploitative, suffocating, oppressive, heavy-handed, unjust, unfair. And as a result, people suffer. And people are disillusioned. And people lose hope. And they see life around them become dull and overcast. But you see the one who rules like David describes, well, it creates an entirely different environment. But there's another dimension to good leadership. He who rules righteously is one dimension. But there's a second. Who rules in the fear of God. They know and they realize that they're ultimately answerable to a higher authority. They're accountable. And the reason that someone can rule righteously is because they know they are ruled. And this country of ours, every country, this church, every church needs leaders like that who lead and govern and rule with justice and in the fear of God. Life in many environments, we'd be quite different if those characteristics prevailed. Let us pray to that end. Please, God, would our leaders lead and rule in righteousness and in the fear of God? But before we kind of leave this great vision of leadership, it's worth making the point, and, and many have, and I know some here are aware of this, that these two verses, three and four, can also be read in the future tense. They're prophetic words that speak of Jesus. This image of a king whose rule and reign brings light and life is surely a graphic indicator of the nature of the reign of Christ. 
that is definitely a way in which we can read this. And in verse 5, David then reflects on his own leadership. He stands back. He said, the one who rules righteously, who rules in the field, he's like the morning at sunrise. He's like a morning without clouds. He's like gleaming. And then David pauses and he reflects on his own leadership, and his own life, and his own rule, and his own reign. But how we read verse 5, and again, and I fully appreciate that. I've struggled with this text this week, and it is a tough text. But how we read verse 5 really depends, and again, on which translation of the Bible we're holding and looking at. And Bible translators have struggled to know exactly how to phrase it, how to capture it. In the Pew Bibles, and what most of you are probably looking at, it reads quite positively. So verse 5 reads, If my house were not right with God, surely he would have not made an everlasting covenant with me. But if you read this in the King James Version and some in older translations, and I have to say I like these better. I think it reads more negatively and probably more honestly. Here's how it reads as David reflects, although my house is not so with God, yet he's made an everlasting covenant with me. Although my house is not so. You see, David was all too aware that his house, and by his house he meant his dynasty, they didn't always get it right. David didn't always rule in righteousness. David didn't always rule in the fear of God. His own behavior wasn't always exemplary, plus one son after another of his days in messy, complicated circumstances. Yet, key word, yet there was hope, real hope, yet God has made an everlasting covenant with me. Yes, I, I don't deserve this. My house certainly doesn't deserve this, but God is still committed to an agreement he made with me. And let me remind, and those who have been tracking this series and the following this series, we've been here, we've gone through this, but here is a phrase, the last phrase of the Davidic covenant. We looked at this back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here's the covenant that God made with David, but here's the last phrase of it. Your house, David, your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. If you go back to 2 Samuel 23 and verse 5, this is why David could say that I have confidence in this covenant. It is arranged. Look at the rest of verse 5. It is secure. It will bring about my salvation. It will grant my every desire. God, David knows that what God says, what God promises, what God commits to will occur. Why? Because God's faithful. David's not faithful. His house hasn't been faithful. As David reflects on his rule and reign, he knows it's not been so with him. He's not always ruled in righteousness. He's not always ruled in the fear of God. But listen, God has made a covenant with me. God has said, your throne, David, it's going to be established forever. And so, God, I'm trusting in that. It's secure it provides salvation, it provides safety. And I know we, we could spend forever on this idea, but let me simply and quickly say this as we come close to an end. There was an, another son of David who did come. Matthew 1, 1 starts, the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, next phrase, the son of David. Skip to the end of that gospel. Matthew 21, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And what is everybody saying? Hosanna to what? The son of David. 
And that son of David, Jesus, established an everlasting kingdom that endures forever, an outworking, part of new covenant in a sense. And in that kingdom, in his kingdom, and under his kingship, we find salvation. We find life in all its fullness. David's last words, his last song expressed confidence in a covenant-keeping God, and we can have that same confidence in a covenant-keeping God. And although David didn't always get it right, and although we don't always get it right, God always does get it right because God is faithful and true to his word. Then you come to the final two verses, six and seven. And again, these are tough verses, and I'm not going to say much about them. I don't have time to. But you can see how David makes it clear that while he rejoices in the covenant that God had made with him, it's important to remember that when a ruler is just, when a ruler is fair, there's got to be judgment. You see, justice demands it. And so for those who oppose God's kingdom, for those who continue in the rebellion against God's kingdom and God's king, there are significant disturbing consequences. And what David says here, and the language he uses is very graphic and it is very disturbing. They will be cast aside like thorns and they'll be burned up where they lie. And so David's last words celebrate salvation, but they don't duck or avoid inevitable judgment. And that's a perspective we must never forget. Each person is destined to die once and then to face judgment because that's what justice demands. And so the song ends and the words fade. But they don't fall silent. Because for years and years and years and years, they've still been heard. They've still been read. They've still been reread and reheard. And we've heard them again tonight. So, how do we respond back to the start? Five ways to respond with respect for David, an inspired, exalted, anointed hero of the faith. With prayer, with prayer for rulers and leaders, please God, would our rulers and our leaders and those who govern us rule in righteousness and in the fear of God. With praise that a son of David did come to establish a kingdom that will last forever and we get to be part of it. We get to be part of it because God's faithful to his covenant. And with thanksgiving for Jesus, the ultimate light and life-giving king, and with acceptance that, yeah, okay, justice, ultimate justice, God's justice includes, requires judgment. And so the story continues next week. Let's pray together. God, I I do thank you for the opportunity to reflect together 
on some famous last words. And I thank you that they were said by someone who was inspired by you, exalted by you, anointed by you, made a hero by you. And as we have listened and as we have reflected and as we have considered and as we have thought, I pray, God, that you would help us to respond to your word in an appropriate way. With respect. And with prayer. And with praise. And with thanksgiving. And with acceptance. And so as we close this service, God, we stand together and we sing of the one who is exalted far above all. In whose name we pray. Amen.